Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. Everyone and welcome to episode 267 of the Criminology Podcast. I'm Mike Ferguson, and this is Mike Morford. Morford, man, what's going on with you? Well, I'm recovering from a, an illness that you know I've been uh, fighting through the last few days. My my kids brought home one of their typical germs that they bring into the house, and as usual, my wife and I are the ones in dealing with it. But feeling better and happy to record this episode. What's new with you? Oh, not a whole lot. I'm, we're counting down to my youngest going to college. My wife's been uh, pretty emotional lately. You know, it's uh, to to think about being an empty nester. I guess is uh, I don't know. It's a little strange. Yeah, it's a new chapter. You've got to figure out what you're going to do. And this week, my my daughter has been away, so it's just my son that's home, and it's, it's a lot quieter. It's a lot different, and you know, you sort of get that feeling. What are you going to do when when we do have an empty nest? Yeah, because, you know, for years and years and years, you're used to noise and routines. And and then when that all goes away, it, it's very, very different. But um, let's go ahead and give our Patreon shout outs. We had Heather Caesar, Stephanie Burnt, Pat Hartley, Ralph Castaneda, and Janet Skull. So that's a lot of great new support. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time to support the show. It means a lot to us. And for anyone else that would like to support, you can go to patreon.com slash criminology. All right, let's jump right in. Now, in our last episode, we talked about the arrest of 59-year-old Rex Harriman, who is suspected of killing four women and burying their bodies on Gilgo Beach in New York. He's also suspected in the Long Island serial killings, which the four murders on Gilgo Beach have long been thought a part of. It's possible there are multiple serial killers operating in the same area, like we talked about before, but it's also possible that he has many more victims than anyone ever thought. He's just the most recent in a long line of other serial killers. And in researching Hiraman and the Long Island serial killer, we were reminded so many times of other known serial killers whose activities and patterns are easy to plot. The existence of these patterns and similarities is part of how criminal profiling and the behavioral analysis unit got started, but it doesn't take an expert to notice them. And we can see them in killers, even going back to the 1800s. In this episode, we're going to take a closer look at the crimes of one of those killers, from the 1800s, H.H. Holmes, who is often called America's first serial killer. While he is widely known as a serial killer with a murder hotel in which he stalked victims, he was only actually convicted of a single murder, but is undoubtedly responsible for more. He ultimately confessed to 27 murders and six attempted murders. H.H. Holmes was born as Herman Webster Mudgett on May 16, 1861, in Gilmanton, New Hampshire. He was said to be bullied by classmates for his intellect, 
and for doing so well in school. When he was 11, some of his classmates pulled him into a doctor's office, an office that he had to walk past every day on the way to school, and he was known to be afraid of. There are varying reports of what happened, but one report says that he was made to touch a skull and that he saw a cabinet full of preserved organs, and whatever happened that day terrified him, but supposedly helped him overcome his fear of death, and it unleashed a fascination with death. He started dissecting animals as part of his newfound curiosity. At age 16, he graduated with honors from Gilmanton Academy. On July 4, 1878, he married Clara Lovering in Alton, New Hampshire. They had one son together named Robert. So, more if this is a big case, I mean, most people know of H.H. Holmes. The one thing that has jumped out at me already was that he was bullied. You know, we've done so many episodes about killers, and one thing that comes up quite a bit is that many of them were bullied as kids. And we know bullying is bad. I mean, there have been so many efforts over the last however many years to, to try to end bullying and, and make it so that people are reporting it. And there's a good reason why, you know, I, I really think that it's so harmful on a psychological level. And I think some of the, the research that we do proves that. Yeah. I think bullying is, is terrible and it's something I've always been against. And I'm glad that in modern times here, They've taken a stance against this in schools and online. People are trying to curb it. But back, obviously, in the 1800s, you know, they didn't have that. It was just probably boys being boys, you know, making fun of each other, that kind of thing. But in a lot of these cases of serial killers, no matter what the year is that we're talking about, there's sometimes something in their background, some moment that might trigger something that, is some kind of trauma they experienced that you, you have to wonder, did it play a role in them becoming a serial killer? And, and perhaps in the case of H.H. H. Holmes, this incident, having to look at these bodies, that may have been the trigger for him. And then he goes on to start dissecting animals. And, and you know, that is something we see quite a bit as well. Cruelty to animals or, you know, fascination with animals as some type of precursor to, I don't want to use the word experimenting because that's not correct, but expanding the their fascination to people. Yeah, it makes me think right away of Jeffrey Dahmer. He had a fascination with experimenting on animals and dissecting them. And I wonder if there's, when does it cross the line between a, a kid that's just curious and has a a mind of wanting to learn about biology and how bodies are put together and it's it's not anything sinister to when they're disturbed and the dissecting of these animals is is a sign of something troubling. In 1882, Herman studied medicine at the University of Vermont in Burlington. In 1883, he and Clara moved to Ann Arbor where he studied medicine at the University of Michigan. In 1884, Clara left Herman and took Robert back to New Hampshire. While in medical school, Herman stole cadavers, took out insurance policies on them, naming himself as the beneficiary, disfigured them in some way so it looked as though they died in an accident, and then placed their body somewhere where it would be found. That same year, 
Herman was supposed to graduate, a widow claimed that he had promised to marry her, but didn't. And so he had a hard time being able to graduate. At first, when we were researching this, we weren't sure if this was some sort of law he was accused of breaking or if it was maybe part of the university's honor code at the time, but whatever the case, it seems interesting that your graduation could be held up due to a false promise of marriage. It turns out that the university did have an honor code, and in their eyes, Herman had broken that code. Herman then moved to Moore's, New York, but left after he was seen in the company of a young boy that ended up disappearing Herman claimed the boy had traveled back to Massachusetts, but he left before any investigation could happen. And I think, once again, we're talking about the time period here. Imagine not being able to graduate college or being threatened with not being able to graduate because you had promised to marry someone, but then broke it off for whatever reason. Definitely a different time back then than than now. Yeah, I'm reminded of... These, and it's a little different, but, you know, towns and cities have these strange laws that are still on the books for whatever reason that go back to, let's say, the 1800s, the early 1900s. There's one that I, I've heard about, and I don't know, it might be close to me and it might not be, I can't remember, but it was like no whale parking on Sunday. And I thought, who's first of all, who's parking a whale this far inland <laughs> or, or parking a whale anywhere? But it, it's like, why wouldn't you take that off the books? Yeah, it's interesting to look back at some of the laws. You know, even back in the 1930s, I remember Frank Sinatra was arrested and charged with seduction, <laughs> whatever that means. Yeah, apparently, he had sex with someone and, you know, it was something that was frowned upon. So even into the 1900s, some of these laws were sort of uh, outdated in comparison with today. By August 1886, Herman Mudgett was living in Chicago, at which point he took on a new name, Henry Howard Holmes, or H.H. Holmes, the name most people know him by today. This was supposedly a name he chose after the fictional detective Sherlock Holmes. H.H. worked as a pharmacist while he schemed about theft and murder. Toward the end of the year, he married Myrta Belknap in Minneapolis, Minnesota. They had one daughter together named Lucy. In Englewood, Minnesota, Holmes went into a drugstore at the northwest corner of South Wallace Avenue and West 63rd Street and was hired to work there by the store's owner, Elizabeth Holton. He worked so hard he was eventually able to buy the store. He also bought the empty lot across the street from the store so that he could build his own building. In 1887, construction began on his two-story mixed-use building with business spaces on the bottom floor and apartments upstairs. So on the one hand, more if it sounds like maybe he was a hard worker. On the other hand, I think he was a schemer. So I don't know how much of it was actually hard work, how much money he was getting from maybe illegitimate sources. But nevertheless, you know, he was able to buy the store and buy this, this lot across the street. So he was making money at the very least. Yeah, to go into a drugstore and take an entry-level job and work your way up all the way to being able to buy it, it, it certainly seems like he was a hard worker. And maybe if he had stayed on a straight path, he could have been a very successful businessman. And instead, he chose to go down a different path. In 1888. 
H.H. Holmes was sued by Aetna Iron and Steel because he didn't pay them or the architect for their services in building his new structure on January 17, 1894. After his second marriage had failed, H.H. Holmes married Georgiana Yoke in Denver, Colorado. At this point, he was still married legally to both Clara and Murda. By 1894, multiple insurance companies wanted H.H. to be prosecuted for arson. It was reported that he would start fires to collect from insurance companies for the damage. The arson was his preferred method of damaging buildings for insurance payout. So in July, hoping to escape the arson charges, he headed to Texas. He attempted to settle in Fort Worth, where he tried to have another building constructed without paying the crew. So no surprise, he didn't last long there. He ended up in St. Louis, Missouri. But again, his ways quickly caught up to him. In 1893, he was arrested for selling mortgaged goods, but he didn't stay behind bars for long. And more if you said something about, okay, maybe he was a hard worker. What would have happened if he would have kind of stayed on that path? Would he have been a successful businessman? Maybe, but it sounds to me as though he was more of a, get-rich-quick schemer. You know, he had a lot of things going. Let's build a building, and we won't pay the crew, set buildings on fire, and, and collect the insurance payouts. You know, I'm really getting a vibe of the guy who wanted money but wanted to to get it quickly and was willing to do illegal things to acquire it. Yeah, he definitely seems like a con man or a grifter, but at the same time, as we mentioned, he seemed like he could have been the person that could have attained all that stuff had he chose to do the right thing and, and do it legally, but he didn't want to do that. So maybe that just speaks to what kind of person he really was deep down, that he was a criminal or had criminal intent. But I think the same could be said for a lot of people who turn to crime. Is it their only avenue in life? And I, and I would say for a lot of people, no. But is it easier? Maybe. You know, most of us who, you know, work a, an eight to five job, which is really probably not many anymore. We're asked to work a lot more hours than that. It's a grind. It's tough, right? It's not easy to make a living that way, but it's legal. It's something you should feel good about. And a lot of people could do it, but they see those dollar signs. And they want that money and they see an easier way to get it. And even though it's not legal, they choose that way. Yeah, we know in 2023, there are people like that that do exactly that. But this goes to show that back in the 1800s, there were people like H.H. Holmes that were the same way. And I think we're going to be talking about that throughout the episode. How many different things that, let's say, H.H. did back in the day still hold true today? And there's probably going to be quite a few things like that. During the brief time H.H. was in jail, he met a man named Marion Hedgepeth, who had been dubbed the Handsome Bandit. Hedgepeth was doing a 25-year sentence at the time. Together, the two men came up with a plan to get a lot of money. Holmes would purchase a life insurance policy for himself, fake his death, and collect $10,000. $10,000 might not sound like a lot, but in today's economy, it's the equivalent of $300,000. Holmes offered Hedgepeth $500 
if he could provide the name of a shady attorney who they could trust to help them with their plan. Hedgepeth told him about a man named Jeff the Howe, a lawyer in St. Louis. Howe was apparently fine with the plan and willing to participate in the fraudulent scheme. Holmes purchased the $10,000 life insurance policy and then faked his own death and had attorney Jeff the Howe reach out to the insurance company to collect on the policy. But the insurance company didn't believe it, and suspicious that something was going on, they didn't release the money. Holmes was frustrated but decided to try the scheme once again, this time with someone else helping him. This time, Benjamin Peitzel, an associate of Holmes, agreed to take part in the insurance fraud scheme. Peitzel purchased a $10,000 life insurance policy for himself in Philadelphia using the false name B.F. Perry. And again, this is over $300,000 in today's money. Holmes would have had enough to pay Hedgepath, Howe, and Peitzel for their help. The plan was for Peitzel to fake his death and Holmes to help him collect the money by finding a cadaver that would double as Perry. They would horribly disfigure this cadaver beyond recognition in what they would claim was a lab accident. But Holmes knew he couldn't go through with this faked death so soon after the the last fake death con because it would be too suspicious. So they pulled off other various cons and thefts while they waited for the right time to put their plan in motion. On September 4th, 1894, Holmes put his own version of the plan into motion. He had decided that he didn't want to pay Peitzel for his help. So he used chloroform to make Peitzel unconscious and then set him on fire using benzene as an accelerant. With Peitzel dead, in a body that he could produce, Holmes was able to collect the insurance payout. So he talked about this guy being a con man, used the word grifter. I mean, I think all of that applies, but now he has definitely crossed a line from monetary crimes to murder. And, you know, what it gives me is the feeling that, again, this guy wanted money. I mean, money's at the root of it. But it's almost as if at a certain point, he realized that he was willing to cross any line to get it. Yeah. And I think with some people, when they cross that line, they don't have a filter. They're just capable of doing it repeatedly. And I think we're going to see that's the case with H.H. Holmes. Holmes convinced Peitzel's wife, Carrie Alice Canning, to grant custody of three of her five children to him. 13-year-old Alice, 9-year-old Nellie and seven-year-old Howard Robert went to live with Holmes. Because Carrie knew about her husband's plan to fake his own death, Holmes was able to convince her that he was still alive and that he had used a cadaver to receive the payout. Holmes claimed that Peitzel was hiding out in London. Holmes and the three children traveled north to Canada, with Carrie and the other two children following closely. He gave Carrie false information to keep her on a separate route and to keep her from reuniting with her children. On October 8, 1894, Holmes killed Alice and Nellie Peitzel. He shoved them both into a large trunk and locked them inside. That may have eventually killed them, but it wasn't fast enough for Holmes. So he cut a hole in the trunk big enough to slide a hose through so that he could pump gas into the trunk, suffocating both girls. He buried them, both nude, at a rental home in Toronto, Canada. Two days later, on October 10th, Holmes killed Howard Robert Peitzel in Indianapolis, Indiana. He drugged him and then burned his dismembered body in the fireplace of his rented cottage. And we just talked about 
you know, individuals crossing a line. You know, was it the first time for him? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know for sure, but you made the point. And I think it's a very valid one that for a lot of people, once you cross that line, it's like the floodgates open. Is it because they realized that it was easier than they thought? It didn't bother them. And they know that they can do it again and again. Or is it because it was actually exciting? And they crave that thrill again and again. I think it's different for different people, but I think at the very least, what we see is that Holmes had no qualms about crossing the line again. And in this case, he was able to kill, you know, young children and it didn't seem to bother him. Yeah. I think killing their father is bad enough. Killing anyone is bad enough, but then you are capable of doing something like this to children, not once, not twice, but three times. I, I think that speaks volumes about what kind of person H.H. H. Holmes was. Yeah, he was a monster. There's no doubt about it. On November 17th, 1894, Holmes was arrested in Boston on a warrant for horse theft out of Texas. He'd been tracked from Philadelphia by the Pinkerton National Detective Agency and quickly arrested before he could flee the country. This is kind of a, a very early interagency cooperative case. He admitted to the insurance scam, but that didn't satisfy authorities who knew that they could build a case against Holmes for murder if they just found the right evidence. In July 1895, the decomposed bodies of Alice and Nellie were found buried about three feet deep by Philadelphia detectives following Holmes' trail. Detective Frank Geyer was able to track Holmes to a pharmacy in Indianapolis where he had purchased the drugs used to kill Howard and later to a knife shop where Holmes had his knives sharpened. Apparently, dismembering the body had been tough on the knives. Howard Peitzel's teeth were later found in the chimney of the home where he was killed. And one thing we've talked about a couple times here is these bodies that are found, bodies found buried, teeth found. Remember, this is way before DNA, uh, before forensic science that we have today. So I wonder how the authorities at the time were able to make identifications on some of these remains they were finding and link them to him. You know, it's a, a challenge today to do that. So back in the 1800s, I can only imagine how tough it would have been. Well, I'm always amazed when we do these older cases and you kind of see the police work that was done. And you think, well, some of that is not all that different from what would happen today. Now, there are a lot of advances in technology that would be used today to aid in that type of stuff. But, you know, the, the legwork, the tracking of homes from one area to the other to where he got his knife sharpened. I mean, that's still kind of what you think of as good old fashioned police work, detective work. Isn't it amazing that we live in a world where you can get anything you need when you need it right to your door? With DoorDash, you can get pretty much anything. And whether you're sick and you don't feel like getting out of the house, DoorDash has you covered. Maybe you're at a party and you run out of alcohol or ice or something like that, but you want to keep that party going. You need a little assist. DoorDash has you covered. Sometimes my wife and I, we just don't feel like making dinner. We're tired. 
who want to watch a show, that's when we hit DoorDash. DoorDash makes it easy to get the food that you want without all of the hassle. And I'm always amazed when I go on DoorDash by the selection. You know, whether you're in the mood for fast food or something a little fancy, maybe a nice steak. I know around me, they have just about everything. The hardest part for my wife and I is deciding on what we both want. That's the only trouble we ever have. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Must be 21 and over to order alcohol. Drink responsibly. Alcohol available only in select markets. Hey folks, we want to introduce you to the game June's Journey. If you haven't played this, you don't know what you're missing. It's so much fun. For you amateur sleuths, it really brings out the inner detective because it's all about finding clues and solving mysteries. You get to play as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You have to use your observation skills, solve mind-teasing mysteries. I love the graphics on this game. I love the hidden object aspect of it. It's full of mystery, danger, and even romance. You can even customize your very own luxurious estate island. And you can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. So, you know, escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker while you travel back to the glamorous 1920. I've been playing this game for a couple of years now, and it's a great escape from everything that goes into putting out the podcast. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Authorities searched HH's Englewood, Illinois home, which many have called a castle, but they found no additional evidence. This home was a very large house with many rooms, and he ran a hotel out of it. It's usually reported that Holmes had the home custom-built to be a house of horrors, a serial killer's dream. A diagram of the so-called castle from the Chicago Tribune showed rooms labeled dark room, secret room, sealed room all bricked in, room of three corpses, and asphyxiation chamber, no light with gas connections. The elevator was labeled dummy elevator for lowering bodies. There were a few hidden rooms, but they weren't torture chambers. They were actually spaces to hide large stolen or unpaid for items like furniture items. A lot of the third floor addition wasn't even complete because Holmes hadn't paid his builders. Even today, there are articles that mention that some of these rooms were soundproof and contained gas lines so that Holmes could asphyxiate his guest if he wanted to. And you could still read about the rented rooms which Holmes used to systematically murder anyone who checked in. Other reports mention acid vats and lime pits inside the home for getting rid of bodies. So it seems like a lot of these reports were really exaggerated and a lot of this stuff wasn't completely accurate. But that doesn't surprise me at all more. I mean, you know, you could look at high profile cases throughout history and look at the reporting. Often it's sensationalized, right? This was a huge case back in the 1800s. The Chicago Tribune did a lot of reporting on it. Other outlets did a lot of reporting on it. Just like today, not everything was 100% accurate. There was a lot of speculation, but it wasn't always written as speculation. It was written more as fact. So, you know, when you research, especially some of these older cases, it's really hard to kind of decipher fact from fiction because 
let's face it, at the end of the day, their goal was to sell newspapers. Well, what sells newspapers better than talking about a house of horrors, a serial killer's dream with all these rooms uh, built to essentially kill people visiting the hotel? You telling me you're not going to pick up that copy and read it? I would. Yeah, I think they were definitely trying to paint a picture for readers that something that would captivate them and, as you put it, sell newspapers. And and sure enough, it worked because a lot of people were interested in this case. And still are today, right? That's That's the amazing part about it. It's so old, and people are still fascinated with H.H. Holmes. Just listen to this description of the Holmes home from a a 1937 article found on biography.com. Oh, what an odd house it was. In all America, there was none other like it. Its chimneys stuck out where chimneys should never stick out. Its stairways ended nowhere in particular. Winding passages brought the uninitiated with a frightful jerk back to where they had started from. There were rooms that had no doors. There were doors that had no rooms, a mysterious house. It was indeed a crooked house, a reflex of the builder's own distorted mind in that house occurred dark and eerie deeds. Okay. I mean, that sounds like some kind of Edgar Allan Poe poem or something. I I don't know. How do you have a room with no door? How do you have a door with no room? Now, while some of the descriptions of some of the rooms in HH's home may have been confusing, the room of five doors and the maze, for example, it seems that the house wasn't actually built specifically to allow Holmes to kill interrupted. If he had built a perfect murder house, it's odd that there's no evidence of his known victims being killed in it. The Peitzel children weren't even killed in the same state as the house of horrors still the the myth persists today it's often called a murder castle or a death hotel and many people just assume that countless victims died in the home the sensational reports about homes at the time may be an indication of how the media was during that period think back to lizzie borden and you may first remember the little rhyme lizzie borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax And when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. At her June 1893 trial, the jury would hear that Lizzie's stepmother had received about 20 injuries, while Lizzie's father had been hit just 10 times, definitely considerably off from the quoted 41. But the 40 and 41 wax sound more sensational. There are other renowned serial killers from the past that are different than modern-day serial killers. One of these killers was a woman named Delphine LaLaurie who was known for the torturing and killing of numerous enslaved people. On April 10, 1834, a fire started in the kitchen of LaLaurie's New Orleans mansion. A 70-year-old woman, the home's cook, was chained to the stove. She had started the fire in an attempt to take her own life, just to escape the conditions she had been forced by LaLaurie to live under. Accounts from over 100 years later mention LaLaurie's sadistic appetite and claim that those responding to the fire found slaves chained to the wall their eyes gouged out, their fingernails pulled out by the roots. Another account from yet another 50 years after the last one has outrageous claims of torture, ending with one victim that looked like a human caterpillar and another that resembled a human crab. Mostly due to these modern fictionalized accounts, 
Delphine LaLaurie is known as a serial killer who tortured and murdered up to 100 slaves. Funeral register records show that only 12 people, all kept as slaves or their children, died at the LaLaurie mansion between 1830 and 1834. She sounds like a very bad person, someone who felt entitled to treat other human beings any way they wanted, because she thought her money meant that she owned them, but maybe not a serial killer in the sense that we know of the term today. Another supposed female serial killer was Elizabeth Bathory, accused of torturing and killing hundreds of young women with the help of four of her servants over a 20-year period. Some people insist that she was the real inspiration for Dracula, as she was said to bathe in the blood of virgins to stay young. This, like the accounts about the LaLaurie Mansion, didn't start until long after Bathory's death, And Bram Stoker didn't mention her anywhere in any of his notes in his book about Dracula. There are many people throughout history who have been cruel to their staff or their servants and slaves. Some have been tried and even executed for murdering their servants without getting their names attached to myths or having their deeds exaggerated. One interesting link between Bathory and LaLaurie is that they both owned land. LaLaurie's mansion was in her name. And Bathory's husband died, leaving her a lot of land. There are theories that Bathory's accusers were politically motivated, with the man leading the charge against her being the same man that Bathory's husband had trusted to watch over her and their children. But the man who acquired LaLaurie's mansion had nothing to do with a creative and sensational writer inventing things a century later. Sometimes it just takes sensationalism to sell a book or a newspaper, or in recent times to bait people to click a link. Well, we can't say for sure that H.H. Holmes never killed anyone in the Chicago building. We can safely say it wasn't a murder hotel with all kinds of victims. Thinking back on serial killers, there seem to be two distinct types when it comes to where they commit their crimes. Some, like Jeffrey Dahmer, liked to lure victims to their homes, where they had total control over them. John Wayne Gacy buried victims in the crawl space of his home. We don't know if burying victims in his crawl space was part of a fantasy Gacy had, or if it was because he felt that they would never be found by burying them there. Either way, it seems that one type of killer prefers the comfort of home and doesn't mind having evidence and literal skeletons in their closets. Other killers like to keep their home base clean and free of any suspicion. In September 1895, H.H. Holmes released his book called Holmes' Own Story, in which the alleged multi-murderer and arch-conspirator tells of the 22 tragic deaths and disappearances in which he is said to be implicated. Holmes received a large payment from the Hart Corporation for his life story, which included confessions. This is something that a modern-day serial killer can't really recreate, Modern laws ban killers from profiting off of their crimes. They're generally called uh, the son of Sam laws because after serial killer David Berkowitz, who called himself son of Sam, was arrested, there was fear that he would take advantage of the media's obsession with his crimes and try to speak to a writer or even a film crew. Though the idea didn't come from Berkowitz, who himself claimed he wasn't going to do this, lawmakers in New York, were quick to make sure he could. H.H. Holmes actually wrote this book after he was arrested for the murder of Howard Robert Peitzel. And in October 1895, a year after he killed Peitzel, Holmes went on trial for the murder of Benjamin Peitzel. Marion Hedgepeth, 
H.H.'s former cellmate was pardoned for his testimony about Holmes and his schemes. He was apparently upset that Holmes hadn't cut him in on 500 hours as promised, and he was quick to turn against Holmes. Holmes was found guilty and given a sentence of death for the murder of Benjamin Peitzel. It quickly became obvious that he had killed Alice, Nellie, and Howard Peitzel as well. Looking at other murders and disappearances that could be connected to Holmes, it didn't take long to find many of both. 68-year-old John Burrell died in the pharmacy on the ground floor of the castle on April 17, 1891. A witness claimed to have seen Holmes administer dark liquid just before he died, but still, mostly due to his age, authorities didn't suspect foul play at the time. Looking back on this death, in 1895 with different background information, it was clear that Holmes benefited from Burrell's death. He was a creditor of Holmes and also had a life insurance policy with Holmes as the beneficiary. The same year that Burrell died in the drugstore, Emily Van Tassel, an employee there, disappeared. Holmes confessed to her murder in his writings. The next year, Dr. Russler, who had an office in the building, disappeared. Holmes also mentioned him in his confessions. Kitty Kelly, who worked as a stenographer for Holmes, also disappeared that year. On Christmas Eve, 1891, Holmes's mistress, Julia Smythe, and her daughter, Pearl Connor disappeared. They had been living in Holmes's hotel since her husband found out about her affair with H.H. Holmes first told those suspicious about their whereabouts that Julia had to go tend to a sudden family emergency. Her sister was sick and dying before claiming that she went to reunite with her husband, Dr. Lorian's Asilius Ned Connor. Eventually, he started telling people that she died while undergoing an abortion. So he poisoned Pearl to cover up Julia's death. A partial skeleton of a child, possibly Pearl, was found when the cellar of the building was excavated. Her father, Dr. Connor, testified against Holmes at his murder trial. In 1892, 23-year-old Emmeline Sigrand worked for Holmes for six months. She disappeared in December. Her parents believed she was off marrying a man named Robert Phelps but authorities think she may have met the same fate as Julius Smythe. In 1893, John Davis traveled from Greenville, Pennsylvania to the World's Fair in Chicago. He would be declared legally dead seven years later after vanishing without a trace. Holmes is suspected of his murder. That same year, Henry Walker from Greensburg, Indiana disappeared after telling friends he would be working for Holmes in Chicago. He had also taken out a life insurance policy with Holmes as the beneficiary. Yeah, you know, the World's Fair was a really big part of this case in that so many people came to Chicago, a lot of them disappeared. Well, I can tell you one thing that you didn't want to do in the late 1800s with H.H. Holmes, and that's take out an insurance policy in your name with him as the beneficiary. Because I get it, there there was some most likely some type of scheme but you were probably going to end up dead and he was going to end up with the money. Yeah. And I'm always curious when somebody that's not like a direct family member winds up as a beneficiary of somebody else's life insurance policy. You know, I can understand in certain businesses, they'll have a partner name the other partner as a beneficiary, vice versa. But just to have someone that you're not connected to, you know, for a business or as a family member, How do you say, hey, I'm going to take out a life insurance policy on you and um, I'm going to be the beneficiary and get people to agree to that? That's kind of 
kind of strange to me. Yeah, apparently it was pretty common back in the day. Um, Gibby and I did an episode, I think it was on True Crime All the Time, not that long ago, where like everyone in the town was doing it. And obviously they started ending up dead, but it was because they were destitute and people were giving them money or giving them food, stuff to live on in exchange for allowing them to take out this life insurance policy. Yeah, one thing I wanted to touch on was the World's Fair happening in Chicago because we know Chicago is a big city. There's lots of potential victims that could be there for H.H. Holmes to pry on. But that World's Fair, I think, attracted like 27 million people to it. So that could mean countless scores of potential victims coming into the area for Holmes to pry on. So I wonder if some of the people that could have disappeared while they were in Chicago for this fair could actually be tied to him. And I think that's what a lot of people believe. And we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about it more at the end, but I think that's the trouble with this case. What's real, what's, you know, boasting to try to sell a book. Um, What's the media sensationalizing uh, a story some of that is really hard to figure out in the 1800s, and it's hard to figure out in this case. Also in 1893, Holmes needed a stenographer and offered the job to an actress named Wilhelmina Minnie Williams, who he met in Boston when he was using a different alias, Harry Gordon. She put the deed to her property in Fort Worth, Texas, to yet another alias of Holmes, Alexander Bond. He later transferred the deed to an alias he assigned to Benjamin Peitzel, Benton Lyman. Minnie's younger sister Anna visited her in Chicago, writing to her aunt on July 5th, 1893, that she was going to Europe with Brother Harry. Neither Minnie or Anna were ever seen after that. The next year, Holmes and Benjamin Peitzel killed a man named George Thomas and disposed of his body in a swamp in Missouri. Also in 1894, Milford Cole from Baltimore, Maryland disappeared. It's assumed after meeting up with Holmes, since he had received a telegraph from him inviting him to Chicago. A bank book belonging to a Lucy Burbank was found when authorities searched the castle. It's unknown what ultimately truly happened to her. All of these possible victims still doesn't add up to the 27 victims that Holmes confessed to killing. And some of the people he confessed to killing were later found alive and well. So I think that goes back to what we were talking about. You know, he was trying to sell a book. So is he going to, you know, try to to pump up the number of his victims? Maybe. And I think some of that is proved by some of these people later being found alive. But I, I think you can also ask the question, are there, People he didn't talk about, maybe because of their age or of their circumstance, I think that's possible as well. My thought is serial killers aren't great at always telling the truth. Yeah, I wonder how much of it could be that he's got so many lies and so many details to sort of keep organized. Could it possibly be that he couldn't keep them all organized and he's just throwing names out there? you know, whether he killed them or not, because he honestly can't remember who's, who his true victims were. I think that's a great point. I mean, 
you know, so much of what he did was built on lies, right? We just talked about a bunch of aliases. At what point, you know, do you struggle to keep everything straight? So, you know, if he's writing a book and he, and he's got to come up with a high number of victims, could it be that he didn't know some people's names? He didn't remember the circumstances. So he made certain things up and some of these people later turned out to be alive, but that doesn't mean they didn't have a bunch of other victims. In August, 1895, Holmes's castle was set on fire by two men using some kind of accelerant. The men were seen entering through the back of the building about 30 minutes before the fire started and then were seen running away. A gas can, still half full, was found underneath the back stairs. The building was finally torn down in 1938, and now you'll find the Englewood Post Office at that location. Holmes was executed at Moya Mensing Prison on May 7, 1896. He was hanged, but the drop didn't kill him. It took over 15 minutes before he could be pronounced dead. His only request was for his coffin to be buried 10 feet deep and encased in cement to prevent grave robbing. He didn't want his body to end up being misused in any way. For someone who regularly stole bodies to use as cadavers, he knew this was a real possibility. And it's pretty ironic that for someone who was fine with the act, that he was so afraid of it happening to him. Holmes was buried, as requested, deep in the ground and surrounded by cement in an unmarked grave at Holy Cross Cemetery in Yadin, Pennsylvania. So there's a couple of things that jump out to me here. One is that there's now a post office at this supposed murder castle <laughs> location. That That's kind of interesting. And then Holmes requesting that his body be buried 10 feet deep and encased in cement. Okay. I understand why he made the request. What I thought was shocking was that they actually honored it. You know, here's a guy who was most likely a, a grave robber himself. We know he used cadavers. I don't know exactly where he, he got them all, but he definitely didn't want his body to be dug up. People request things all the time. I'm just shocked that they actually said, yeah, no problem. We'll do that. We'll spend the extra money and encase you in the cement. Yeah. It's not like he's requesting a last meal. This is a pretty extravagant thing that he's asking for. But somehow rumors began to circulate that Holmes hadn't actually been executed. In 2017, the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology decided to put to rest once and for all the rumors that somehow Holmes hadn't actually been executed on May 7th, 1896. Part of this rumor is probably rooted in the fact that he wrote a lot about how his face had changed while in prison when he was giving his confessions and life story the rumor was that holmes had enlisted a crooked guard to perhaps help him fake his death as he had done in the past a team led by physical anthropologist janet monge exhumed holmes's body the cement around his coffin had kept his clothes and hair from decomposing to the same extent as other bodies buried around the same time even his mustache was apparently still as it was the day he was buried. And for anybody who has seen a picture of Holmes, you would have to say the guy had a magnificent mustache. It was a horrible person, but he had a heck of a mustache. By examining his teeth, it was determined that the body in the coffin was actually Holmes. 
He had not escaped execution after all. After exhumation, Holmes's body was reinterred at the same cemetery in Yeadon, Pennsylvania. And my understanding is that they had hoped to use DNA, but obviously his body had been there a long time. It had degraded. They, they couldn't get a, a viable sample. I'm actually shocked that they were able to do it by, uh, you know, examining his teeth. I can't imagine that they used dental records. They weren't going to have dental records from 1896. And obviously they weren't going to have x-rays or, or anything like that. So I don't know. There wasn't a lot of information about how the examination of the teeth proved that, that, uh, it was Holmes. And maybe they had, he had some distinct teeth that they were able to look at and just come to the conclusion that, yeah, this is him. One thing that interests me is, you know, I understand on, on one hand wanting to have an answer once and for all, but at the same time, you know, it's a hundred and something years later, would it matter in the grand scheme of things? You know, even if it turned out that it wasn't him, I mean, it might make for an interesting story or book, but it, it wouldn't bring any justice to any of the victims. It wouldn't, it would only lead to more questions and, and speculation. Yeah. I'm not sure why they did it other than the fact that they were, you know, part of the uh, museum of archeology span and anthropology. And they thought, Hey, if they'll let us do this. We could put this to rest. Uh, and I don't fault them at all. I mean, if you're in that field and you get a chance to do this, I can totally understand why they would want to do this. Yeah, absolutely. One of H.H. Holmes's descendants believes that Holmes could have been Jack the Ripper, the infamous serial killer responsible for at least five murders in London, England. The murders happened between 1888 and 1891, so Holmes wasn't in custody yet, and he did travel extensively. Jack the Ripper was thought to have had Jack the Ripper was thought to have had a medical background of some kind. Most experts don't think H.H. Holmes was Jack the Ripper. Holmes seemed to kill for convenience mostly covering up his financial frauds, while in the case of Jack the Ripper, based on crime scene photos of his victims, mutilation seemed like something that the killer enjoyed. Holmes wanted evidence of his murders to go away to distance himself from his crimes, while Jack the Ripper left his victims out in the open in very undignified poses. He wanted people to see what he had done. Yeah, I know this is something that comes up quite a bit in both cases, right? This possible connection between H.H. Holmes and Jack the Ripper. I don't see it. Now, I understand why it might be fascinating to people to think, oh, you have this serial killer in Chicago. You know, he traveled to London, let's say, but they just don't seem to match in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, I've never understood the comparison either, the link people have tried to make it would be one thing if there were a series of similar murders in which sex workers were found you know gutted disemboweled out in the open and they matched the mo in in the jack the ripper crimes but it, it really doesn't even match up there so to, to me it's always surprised me that people have tried to link these crimes but don't we see it so often we've talked about it before i mean how many different unsolved crimes have people tried to link to the zodiac you know, or to some other famous or infamous unsolved killer. It's kind of part and parcel of the unsolved nature of these types of murders, 
trying to link them to other series of unsolved murders because you know the thought is always that well the reason why the murder stopped was because let's say this person thought the heat was was getting too much they moved but they couldn't stop their compulsion so they kept killing just in a different area now to me it goes back to what we talked about earlier that perhaps it's a sensationalism it makes for a better story if somehow we could say that jack the ripper may have been hh holmes it gets more people talking about it and it's more to more to theorize about yeah absolutely we have two infamous serial killers and the thought of them being the same person is sensational and so if you've got a story like that okay people are going to want to read that but to me, there's no there's no conclusive proof, and it really doesn't even seem logical and, and from what I've seen. From America's supposed first serial killer to the most recent Rex Hirman, the multiple aliases, owned property, multi-state travel, and even the coverage in the media, they're similar. When comparing Holmes and Hirman, could this just be proof? that even after almost 130 years, some serial killers just have a lot of things in common. Things that, despite the passage of time, don't really change for some of them. I think when you look back at the crimes of someone like H.H. Holmes, is it possible to look at those crimes, to try to understand them in an effort to help stop modern-day serial killers or at the very least, find commonality between these killers in different centuries? And I think the answer is yes. Not just between, you know, H.H. Holmes and, and Rex Herman. I think you have to study all of these different types of killers in an effort to help apprehend or even in some cases help stop or identify modern day serial killer. I mean, what else are you going to use? You've got to use history. You have to use examples. I mean, we talked about it towards the beginning of the episode. Some things that we see in modern day serial killers, like their background, being bullied, um, head trauma. There's all kinds of different things. That seems to be, for many, to be pervasive. And, and, and goes back in time. So I think you got to look at people throughout history, what they did, what techniques they used to cover up their crimes, their background, what their motives were, all of that. Yeah, I think it's fascinating to look back and see how killers from the 1800s have a lot in common with killers from modern times. You know, technology changes, society changes, Lots of things change over that 130 plus years, but at the root of it, you still have what appears to be some of the same common behaviors, as you mentioned, head trauma, you know, bedwetting, bullying, things like that, setting fires, hurting animals. It, it's just, that's one thing that has never seemed to change going all the way back as far as can be tracked, that a lot of the serial killers back then as with today have these things in the, in their past. So I wonder if, if you can 
use some of these killers in the past to help identify killers in the present. Well, and the other thing that jumps out at me is the reason behind murders. You know, you mentioned how much the world has changed in the last 130 years plus, but you know what hasn't changed is the reason for murders, greed, revenge, love, jealousy. You know, a lot of those things still exist and it's the, some of the same reasons people still kill today. But, you know, in wrapping up H.H. Holmes, it's a fascinating case and a lot of people have studied it extensively. For me, one of the fascinations about Holmes is that there's been so much written about him over the years. A lot of it is, as we talked about earlier, not quite accurate. A lot of it was sensational type writing. It's really hard to tell how many people he killed, how many people he killed in his quote unquote murder hotel and how the actual number may line up with his confession. And you mentioned the world's fair, 27 million people in the 1800s. I mean, what better scenario could you think of if you were a serial killer who was operating a hotel in and around the city where the world's fair was being held? Yeah, it definitely seems like you could have countless potential victims coming in unaware of, of what they were walking into and you have no link to them. And it's not like today where there's, it's easy to track missing people, social media, that kind of stuff. They didn't have that back then. So it'd be a lot easier for someone to disappear without a trace or figure out where they were last at. But one thing that jumps out to me in this case is the, the hotel itself, this reputation that it's gotten over the, the last 130 years that it's almost like a character in the story of how frightening it is. And it almost sounds like something out of a, a haunted house movie. And, and you know, some of that is probably real. A lot of that is again, sensationalism, but that's it for our episode on HH Holmes. If you love the show, haven't done so yet, take a minute, go out, give us a five-star rating, leave a review. Also keep telling your friends that word of mouth about the podcast really helps us out. If you want to find us on social media, we're on Twitter with the handle at criminology pod. You can also find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash criminology podcast. And you can join our Facebook discussion group, criminology podcast discussion and fans. So that's it for another episode of criminology, but Morph and I will be back with all of you next Saturday night with a brand new episode. So until then for Mike, and Morph. We'll talk to you next week. Take care, everyone.